John, you've lived a blessed life. I mm, sure. <laughs> and I mean, if you lived a truly blessed life, you wouldn't understand how blessed you truly were. Uh, think about I don't, it. I disagree I with that completely. <laughs> if anything, that sounds like a, the sign of an unhumble life, which you also lead. Because yes, of course, you are blessed enough to live in the most desirable city in the United States, San Diego. And also this past weekend was, it played host to the biggest movie convention in the world, Comic-Con. Even bigger than Cannes, even bigger than Sundance, even bigger than, uh, I don't know, the uh, Slam Dance Film Festival. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Comic-Con! I know, why didn't you go to Comic-Con? Why, why didn't you uh, partake in the... In just the because the... I'm not stupid! <laughs> because, who pays... 100 and whatever dollars it probably is to walk around a, a hot, sweaty convention. <laughs> yeah, 100 whatever dollars mm-hmm. to walk around a sweaty convention so that they can sell you more shit that you don't need. Okay, do I look like the kind of person who collects like Funko Pop dolls? No, okay? I'm not a fool. <laughs> and I'm not going to wait four hours in line so I can get into Hall H to see an Aquaman trailer, okay? I'm not <laughs> stupid. I'm not a fool. These people are fools. And then also, there's nothing that San Diegans like myself, hate more than Comic-Con because they close down all the streets downtown. Not 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 all the streets, but a good majority of them. Yeah. Enough to make traffic back all the way up, up to Miramar, which is where I work, okay? <laughs> so I'm stuck in traffic for like two hours because, yes, I take the 163 every day, all right? Fine, I a window into my world. <laughs> I think you're just blaming regular rush hour. I don't think the, the street closures no, downtown no. have anything to rush do with hour that. was definitely worse on Thursday. Yeah, okay. Or, sorry, Wednesday night. That was preview night. <laughs> here's, the, here's the advantage. Here's the silver lining. Yeah. Hollywood is slowly waking up and realizing that Comic-Con is a complete waste of time. <laughs> I, I think you're right there, bro, because you've, you've immediately already brought more fire than was during, than throughout the entire weekend. <laughs> I'm looking at the, I'm looking at all the previews and stuff, and I'm wondering, Comic Con, where's the juice? Where's where's mm-hmm. the big stuff? Where's the where are the movies? Where's instead I've got like oh here's a here's a preview of a show where Robin swears, and it's for like a streaming service that nobody will watch. <laughs> it's great that uh, DC's clearly learning its lesson. <laughs> yeah. After all the you know dark and gritty qualities of Batman v Superman, they're like you know this needs to be in Teen Titans too. Let's do that. <laughs> Let's have him say "fuck Batman." That'll really draw the crowd. Yeah. Speaking of which, isn't there a Teen Titans movie coming like literally around the corner? That's like goofy and fun. I. Who knows what the fuck they're doing? Okay, so there's like a, there's a Shazam movie in development. Aquaman is apparently <laughs> supposed to be premiering in, uh, like doing around the trailer. Christmas. Yeah. Yeah, but it's supposed to come around Christmas, so too little, too late. And then they just announced their big streaming service, DC Universe. Where they're going to revive, like, Young Justice and a bunch of stuff like that. Didn't they already do a video game based around the DC Universe? Or, like, a, like yeah. a Warcraft clone? Not clone or something like that, but a big, the same kind of game. A, oh, a yeah, like a more player. Yeah, I think it yeah. was legit called DC Universe, yeah. Okay. But, I, was, I mean, there's been a million DC games. Like, obviously, that did Gamebusters, John, so <laughs> streaming service is the next big thing. Now, Greg, are you accusing them of following the trends? Okay. <laughs> And well, yeah, when they work out so swimmingly as they did on this big, uh, <laughs> massive role-playing game. I mean, look at their cinematic universe. It's doing gangbusters. Exactly. I think this is a stunning revelation that uh, now now our listeners know that you don't collect Funko Pop figures. I mean, <laughs> Dateline Hollywood. John thinks Funko Pops are stupid. John, where are your loot crates? Where's your geek boxes and <laughs> nerd crates? 
Greg, we might be sponsoring them one day. That's true. <laughs> Actually, no. We're gonna hopefully we'll be sponsoring a mattress company one of these days. Oh yeah, that's our journey. I I'm still I'm still in talks with Stamps.com because I hate going. <laughs> let me tell you, I hate going to the post office. <laughs> it's the worst. Yeah. That's a little preview of future commercials. Yeah. Got advertisers out there, potential advertisers. This is what you're getting when yeah. you're working with the aspiring snobs. Mm-hmm. We should probably explain. This is the aspiring snobs podcast. Where, again, we, re- we review classic movies that we haven't seen before. Maybe one of us has seen it before. But mm-hmm. we revisit them and decide, you know, because we're consumer reports. We, mm-hmm. or we're not literally consumer reports, but we're <laughs> consumer advocates. And we want you to know whether they actually hold up or are worthy of that kind of classic status. Exactly. And you can join with us as we go on this journey yes. and recapture the magic of all these movies we probably should have seen by now, if we are to consider ourselves snobs. Well, that's why we're aspiring, John. I, again, I don't know what the cultural obligation is to we've seen them by now. I mean, <laughs> it sounds like you're putting like a ticking clock on this. <laughs> Greg, everything's a ticking clock. Everything is ephemeral. You're right. Nothing is permanent. You're right. These we're are... all slowly, slowly... These are the movies you have to see before you die. Die! <laughs> You perish from this mortal coil. (laughs) Speaking of one of the 1,000 movies you need to see before you die, Ah. this week, we we got a chance to catch the 1949 film, The Third Man. Okay, first point of contention: the score. What'd What's wrong with the score? score? Well, obviously, I... obviously, it's delightful. Obviously, it's I'm, unique. I'm, 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 it's in my, it's stuck in my head now, ad infinitum, forever. Exactly, but it's very unique. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's very much uh, different than what you would expect out of a thriller or a noir film. But it doesn't always quite fit, does it? No, I, th- I think it does because this is like, uh, it reminds me of gypsy jazz, which I think is uh, indicative of the era. Kind of post war. No, I, it's absolutely appropriate era. Tone wise, it's not always appropriate. Well, no. Like when I, our young, like when our young hero, uh, Martins, has just been accused of murder and has to run away. You know, with a back backing track. Well, that's when there's there's not a key change or something like that, but the pace picks up. That see, it works. Okay. So your obviously first point of contention is the score, and it sounds like um you have other you have other little niggles with this movie. Um, no, it was really just because I really, really liked this movie. I thought it was great. Oh, that's, um, that's good to hear. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> what did you expect? <laughs> exactly. I'm a smart, erudite man. I appreciate things. Yeah, this was your first viewing of it. This was my second viewing. And I was going to say, this is a genre that we haven't talked about much, but film noir. Mm, oh, yes. Because it was a very limited uh, genre, pretty much limited to a 20-year window of, like, kind of classic, you know, golden era Hollywood. I mean, the other main kind of niggle I have with it is obviously the movie selling you on its star, Orson Welles. <laughs> <laughs> and well, I mean, his his character is is obviously casts a pall over the entire film. Exactly, he is the uh, the highlight of the movie, so they use him very selectively. 
Yeah, so you need a, a star to kind of communicate that. Yeah, that's true. But he doesn't really appear until like an hour into the movie. And I didn't think we got enough of him. <laughs> uh, well, no, it also could have been because he, he refused to shoot a lot of his scenes in a sewer. Um, oh, I guess that's also true. <laughs> Um, he didn't, he didn't want to get exercise, and this is something that he carried throughout the rest of his life. (laughs) I was going to say, this is the most running slash exercise I've ever seen Orson Welles do. (laughs) Yeah, and and if you read the behind the scenes stuff, it's, uh, it was actually a a stunt double or body double. Oh, okay. Yeah, because he's not, I'm not going, in shadow, nothing matters. (laughs) No. And I'm not going anywhere near those smells and diseases (laughs) that are currently swimming under Vienna. But anyway, back to our first impressions. Um, yes. You really enjoyed the movie. I did. Uh, I'm a big okay. fan of film noir. And also, this is obviously uh, has a reputation of being one of the better ones. I'm sure mm-hmm. there are probably a few out there that are kind of just like dime store novels. But this one, is uh, it shows off a lot of craft. The acting's very good. The script is very tight. I love the script. Uh, the story's very good. So, yeah, there's no reason why I shouldn't like it. Well, yeah, I... Speak, going back to our film noir, I'm glad you're a fan of it because I, I actually don't think I am an overall <gasps> fan of film noir. What? Uh, I, th- well, obviously. Uh, what? <laughs> I'm sorry. We have subvers- the we have a subversive. The men in white coats are coming for me like, right now <laughs> to drag me away to I don't know Arkham to Summit State <laughs> Asylum in upstate Massachusetts. Uh, no, I of the film noir I've seen. I, I appreciate, as you said, the craft behind it, the shadows, the the mystery, mm. and the and the stories they tell. But the problem is, for me, it's all mechanical. Mm. It's all like kind of devoted to the the structure and kind of the and the production design, but not really to character and you know maybe some emotional connection. And that's what this movie really nails: is that there's a soul to it, whereas other film noir, I think, that's missing. But here, it's the soul that not only the friendship between the two main characters, but also the relationship that our complicated villain has to this woman who's played her, by uh valley yes her name is uh ann and uh she is her a character's kinda, name is ann yeah yeah she's she's kind of a refugee i guess yes. uh she has she has gotten in the some country pap- illegally yeah. yeah she's in the country illegally she's gotten these uh papers forged by uh basically our i guess is is martin's the main character or is harry lime the main character <laughs> <laughs> no i would say harry lime is the antagonist Okay, that's what yes. I would. That's why mm-hmm. let's classify him. I will. We don't. We don't see. He, again, he casts Paul over the whole movie, but we don't see the kind of depth of his evil until later. Exactly. And I mean, it's his quote unquote death. Spoiler alert. That kind of yeah. sets the cat is the catalyst for the whole plot. Uh, mm-hmm. Our main character, I guess, is Holly Martins, who is this you know novelist. <laughs> um, which Played again is great... a, which is a, a nice little uh, note that I like about my favorite film noirs. Uh, this and uh, Sunset Boulevard, where our main characters are writers, so they can yeah. kind of comment and give it a little bit of a meta quality. Because you're absolutely right, uh, noir is very mechanical and it's also very predictable. And well, the other point you should make is that they're hapless writers. They're kind of they're not they're not necessarily respected, even though that is a a plot point later. It's like, hey, you're an author, come speak at our. <laughs> Come speak at our literary society, even though you write dime store trash. Exactly, yeah. And that's and that's kind of the joke of the movie, is the fact that when people do recognize him, it's because his novels are very pulpy. They're like, yeah. you know, the Oklahoma kid and the shootout at, you know, yeah. Sunset Sierra Ranch Ridge. or whatever. Yeah. yeah. You talk about him as if he had occasional bad manners. No, I don't know. I'm just a hack writer who drinks too much and... Falls in love with girls. You? Me? 
Don't be such a fool, of course. If you drank me up and asked me whether you're fair or dark, if I had a mustache, I wouldn't have no. Oh, I am leaving Diana. I don't care whether Harry was murdered by Kurtz or Pepesco or the third man. Whoever killed him, there was some sort of justice. Maybe I would have killed him myself. A person doesn't change because you find out. I appreciated that quality. Um, so he comes into Vienna because uh, his friend Harry Lyme has invited him there. Uh, do we get a reason why he's been invited? Well, because uh, I think he's uh, our protagonist, Holly Martins, is down on his luck, mm -hmm. for one thing. Yeah. Um, whereas Harry Lyme, you know, he's like he's like red in Shawshank Redemption. He can get you anything. Um, exactly. He's a man his... about town. So he's more of a socialite, and I think he just wants to help out his friend. I believe I believe that's the that's the impetus for him arriving in Vienna. We should probably explain kind of war torn post, not exactly war torn, but kind of reconstruction Vienna. Mm -hmm. So there's still some obviously brilliant. Uh, just gorgeous, you know, old world European charm, but it's also a little bit dilapidated and kind of crumbling. Exactly. And there's a lot of chase scenes where they kind of have to climb through rubble to kind of get mm -hmm. away, like through back alleys, and then they end up at a building that's been bombed out. So, again, a lot of great setting, a lot of great space, a lot of great use of lighting and that sort. Yes. And don't forget, John, the Dutch angles. Oh, so many Dutch angles. <laughs> Although they're kind of more reserved for. Uh, um, shot reverse shot between conversations because what i also appreciate about the setting is the fact that it puts martin's it out, out of sorts he's in this foreign country he doesn't really speak the language but then also there's so many languages that are spoken in this neighborhood <laughs> there's a russian quarter there's a german quarter there's an austrian quarter and i think the movie uses this kind of this tower of babel-esque quality quite well is when you know harry doesn't like he uh Holly doesn't really speak the language. He doesn't really understand what's going on. And then everyone's obviously being obfuscating as well. So, mm -hmm. like, at one point, he's getting, like, a translation from someone who actually witnessed the quote-unquote accident. And yeah. it's, you know, you're never really sure if the person's properly translating and giving him the whole truth. Yeah. Well, we should probably explain the accident. Holly Martins arrives in Vienna, mm -hmm. and it turns out Harry Lyme is dead. He's been, he's been hit by a car and mm. passed away. Or so, Under or so we what, assume. Yes. Holly's obviously very suspicious of what happened, because everyone kind of has a slightly different story. Mm -hmm. One person says, like, oh, he died instantly, and then another person says, like, oh, you know, he even towards the end, he cared about you so much. You know, and his final words were, like, making sure that you got here safely. And he's like, well, I thought he died instantly. And then yeah. there's the whole talk of who carried him to the street? Why did you carry him to the street and not back into his house? And how many mm -hmm. people did it take to carry him? Well, we know there was one person there. And we know there was another person there. But some stories say there's a third man. Title drop. Bam. <laughs> <laughs> Roll credits. Yeah. I, we should explain because we're all over the place here. Exactly. <laughs> this is all this is all set up in the opening act. As you said, Holly Martins is a little out of sorts. Um, he doesn't speak German or French or any any other language other than English, and the characters who do speak English, namely leader of the British district of Vienna, his mm -hmm. name's Major Calloway, like kind of wants him out of town immediately. Mm. There's obviously there, that's the main source of the conflict in addition to his friend now being dead, his mm -hmm. friend and host in Vienna now being dead. But I think what the Dutch angles here, the production-wise, also serves is that um, it it 
it conveys that something is very off in these opening 30 minutes and also helps that these opening 30 minutes is it is all talking there is mm-hmm. no action at this point and you know you mentioned that later in the movie they do use um the great architecture of vienna to its fullest in these chase scenes and other great conflicts that take place at say at a ferris wheel but in these opening minutes it is just like kind of tete-a-tete back and forth and that's where the the production or the direction by carol reed um really does kind of make it make it more invigorating mm-hmm. than say i think your typical film noir in addition to the story also just being more having more of an emotional component because after he finds out you know there's some sp- suspicion behind harry lime's death he also meets uh lime's girlfriend mm-hmm. which the uh Anne, who we mentioned yeah um but and, i wanted to go back to calloway real quick yeah and I really actually liked his character a lot because when we first kind of when he's first introduced, we think he's kind of the antagonist. He's mm-hmm. not really kind of uh, investigating as much as he possibly could, and again, he's obfuscating just like everyone else to Holly. You know, oh, I don't really know what's going on. Oh, you're not involved. Why don't you just scoot out of town? Okay, you're kind of in the way. And eventually, once you know we get to the halfway point, the midway twist, our allegiance is kind of shift. We kind of realize the kind of person Harry is, Harry Lyme, yeah. and then Calloway is actually a man who's really trying to pursue justice here. Yeah. And what also helps is that he, uh, Calloway has a right-hand man named Sergeant Payne. Oh, Sergeant Payne. Uh, yeah. Oh, who is that? Uh, that lovely little cockney fool. <laughs> <laughs> and he's actually a big fan of, like, Holly Martins, and even even when they're trying to drag him away, <laughs> get him <laughs> get him to his hotel and away from crime scenes and other crowds, he's just like, uh, you know, I do admire your books, I do. <laughs> So there's some, there's, it, you know, what could have been like a very dark or mysterious story, as you said, is improved mightily by the great Alex Karras, or sorry, Anton Karras score on the zither, mm-hmm. you know, the, the jaunty little t- uh, string tune. Mm-hmm. And also these characters uh, like Payne, who, you know, do, who do add a little bit of levity and lightness to the story. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it's also when characters do start coming to a tragic end, I think his is definitely the most tragic. Oh, it's, yeah. If you're just going to jump to the end, come on, bro. <laughs> I'm sorry, we're already all over the place. It's like, what does yeah. it matter? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, let's get to the, the the tragic points of the story. A, we learn a little bit more about Anne and that she is a refugee from Czechoslovakia and mm-hmm. you know could, could get kicked out of town at any moment. Exactly. And... I think she also knows how complicated her relationship is. She obviously is in love with Harry Lyme, but mm-hmm. I think she knows the depth of his, let's say, duplicity and, and uh, deceitful... Uh, well, yeah, that's what that's what duplicity means, Greg. <laughs> Idiot. Um, and his Greg, duplicity... you're being redundant again, which yeah, is to exactly. say you're saying the same thing twice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> let's say um let's say deviousness because mm-hmm. it, as you mentioned Callaway you know just seems to be you know just seems to be in uh, Holly Martin's way exactly but as as he reveals um Harry Lime is actually not a good guy um in all his smuggling he also profits off of uh selling penicillin ne- uh medicine that's much needed for the kids mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, think cut- of the children <laughs> i know exactly uh, well we we joke, but yeah, I mean, he we, they go to a hospital and they do see that children are suffering and they desperately need medicine that um that like Martin Shrecky before uh, after him, um he's just he's just making a money off of exactly he's he's making money off of watered down penicillin, and mm-hmm. it's it's funny because Holly and Anne and like kind of end up going on parallel tracks because 
uh, Holly kind of comes into town, you know, expecting to kind of see an old friend. He grew up with Harry. He always yeah. knew him as a kid, and he even reminisces about when they were kids and how Harry could always, quote-unquote, fix things. He obviously knows Harry from a young age, who was always kind of mischievous, but he, too, kind of has this heart-to-heart with Harry later, and he kind of realizes the depths of his depravity. But, again, the way that uh, Orson Welles plays him, he's so charming. <laughs> well, that well, just to, to cut back on what you said, there they have uh, he uh, Holly Martin's and Anne have this parallel journey. What I also found in the second viewing is that they're also both artists. Um, That's a good who point. Wanna, yeah, who who both take kind of like lighthearted work mostly. Mm-hmm. I mean, Holly with his uh, dime store novels, dime store westerns, and her we see her perform on stage, and she's doing like a lighthearted play. Like yeah, a, it's like a comic opera. Well, so she even they, makes that point when he asks, like, "What's your next play? Is it going to be a comedy or a tragedy?" She goes, and she "Comedy." Says, I never do tragedy. Yeah, and but, obviously because her life is full of enough of it already. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and also her, with her relationship to Harry Lyme, which also the spoiler alert will end in tragedy. So, <laughs> step out in the light and let's have a look at you. Who's your boss? You're too dead, no one was just in Dallas. Sounds was bald in ihn überhaupt ein. Sind Sie deppert? Ja, Sie meine ich, schauen Sie zu blöd. Eine Frechheit ist das nicht, in der Nacht zu einem Krawall zu machen. Harry! Eine Frechheit ist das, zu einem Krawall zu machen. it's funny we haven't even gotten to the yeah you're about to get to harry line we haven't even gotten to the mystery because i think that's so that's so kind of sidelined and i don't think Wright or graham green even cared about you know adding like enough twists like oh there there's a third man there's you know what uh, did he die instantly or did he mm-hmm. have this uh deathbed scene and like that at that point it doesn't matter yeah, what I guess matters true, is yeah. yeah what matters is that harry lime is actually alive and in mm-hmm. hiding well, and also it's just, you know, you fill it with so many interesting, rich characters and just kind of all these very unique personalities that surround Holly that he gets to interview. I think that also kind of helps. And like, again, you don't need the machinations to be that complicated because, again, once you fill it with enough richness and texture, then that kind of falls by the wayside or you don't even really notice how simple the story really is. Uh, you know, you come to town, you think your friend is dead. Turns out he faked his death so he could continue to commit crimes. <laughs> yeah. And also, whatever little machinations they are, like you mentioned that at one point, uh, Holly Martins gets pegged for murder. Mm-hmm. Um, now, granted, we don't feel we don't feel the impact of that death. <laughs> it's kind of forgotten about. This is this poor old man. Um, <laughs> well, it's like he's he's kind of supposed to be like a fugitive, but he still just kind of like wanders around Vienna wherever the hell he wants. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean that the. the well, Sergeant Calloway and Payne do exonerate him. That's how he gets away. With I guess that's order. true. He is being protected by the police. So yeah, and and who presumably know that no, he did not commit this crime. <laughs> um, that's what all the Austrians suspect. So that is true. But again, that moment's kind of undercut because as soon as he's accused of murder, again, shadowy, all eyes are on him. But what's going on in the background? Do 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 do. Well, I I don't think it's undercut. I think it. It plays because I think we know that no, he's he's not the actual murderer. I mean, our sympathies always lie with Holly Martin's the whole time. I guess that's true. 
Yeah, so we never feel I, I, and it's still pretty early in the story. I mean, we don't want to feel that he's in danger yet. Mm-hmm. Um, the only time that when we do is when, and he, and th- this is important to the reveal. He sees that somebody's tailing him, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, a cat goes over to his 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 feet aren't even in shadow. I mean, he's doing such a bad job of <laughs> of tailing uh, Joseph Cotton's character. Yeah, that. That he's like, oh, okay, come on out, reveal yourself. You know, uh, somebody turns on their light, <laughs> that somehow becomes a big spotlight on <laughs> the churlish grin of Orson Welles. <laughs> well, you also mentioned the cat. I kind of, I kind of saw it coming because, again, the cat is an important plot point. Uh, when he visits Anne, you know, he tries to play with the cat. The cat has obviously no interest with him, and she mm-hmm. mentions the cat only liked Harry. And yeah. so when we see the cat walk to these mysterious feet cast in shadow we obviously know who it's supposed to be well i didn't i didn't get that the second time (laughs) wow okay more like we need aspiring brainiac because you clearly (laughs) missed a lot well i mean well here's where we catch up with uh orson welles the the guy above the queue Mm, yes he was he's obviously the biggest star in the movie uh sorry joseph cotton Um, (laughs) you'll always you'll always play second fiddle to orson welles (laughs) Life plays a second fiddle to Orson Welles. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Jedediah. <laughs> I mean, maybe it would have been nice to get like a flashback or something, so we knew that Orson Welles was playing Harry. So it would have been kind of like more of a twist, because again, the or maybe maybe like a picture of him. Or something. Exactly. Like the audience doesn't know Orson Welles is supposed to be Harry Lyme, and no. uh, and again, I think that's why they inserted that like quick line where Holly sees him and goes Harry, like, mm-hmm. and. Again, in terms of ramping up, this is our second and third act twist. When I originally saw the movie, I thought, oh, this is going to take place at the very end, and it's going to be the impetus for the famous chase scene, mm-hmm. which which is the climax of the film. However, there, this is when he goes back to the police saying, like, hey, Harry's still alive, and they have to <laughs> dig up. I mean, it... If there, if we are going to niggle with the movie, I mean, how do you how do you not know which corpse you're burying? I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, the other kind of weird thing is that we get this brief little meeting with them, and then they have that scene with the Ferris wheel, which is actually brilliantly shot, and kind of gives an excuse for the Dutch angles, because again, the car is always shifting. So when they use Dutch <laughs> angles for that, I'm like, oh, okay, this makes sense. Um, well, there you don't even need him, because I think the point is, like, oh, there's going to be some threat. You you know the secret that I'm still alive. Mm-hmm. Well, why, don't we, why don't we go to the precipice here, you know? <laughs> exactly, he opens the door. Nobody's going to suspect a thing, yeah. <laughs> He opens the door and says, like, one of us is going to end up dead by the end of this or something yeah. like that. Like something kind of like innocuous, but also quite threatening. Um, mm-hmm. And then he ends up going back to the police anyway. Some friend yeah. Holly is. I just, well, because he knows how evil he is at this point. I guess that's true. Yeah. And, you know, in spite of the charm, like, A, like, um, I think it's, you know, he tries to, Orson Welles, I mean, obviously he can charm the habit off a of nun, but mm-hmm. he does the lines, apparently he improvised some lines. First that he, uh, his character has a cold. It was just like, ugh, you know, can't can't hack it, you know. Well, no, he's, Here, he's got, like, like, heart palpitations or something like that. Oh, that too, yeah. Yeah, he's taking, like, antacids to calm his, you know, old ticker. That's it, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know where I got the cold from. I just had a cold, so... <laughs> Again, I immediately sympathize with anybody who's afflicted by it, but... <laughs> and then we have this tense scene where it's like, you know, you're not going to give me up, are you? I mean, old friend. <laughs> exactly. And then culminating in perhaps maybe maybe one of cinema's most famous speeches, or at least a little asides... <laughs> I I uh, thought it was actually quite dumb. <laughs> I just, what do you mean? What are you talking about? 300 years of history and all they came up with is the cuckoo clock. I'm like, is that supposed to be insightful or did you just want to say cuckoo clock? 
I that's the punchline, John. John, it's the punch. All right. All right. The, the point he's trying to make is that um, strife and warfare and human human misery and death is what drives progress. Mm, mm, I don't know. Oh, if you ever get Anna out of this mess, be kind to her. You'll find she's worth it. I wish I'd asked you to bring me some of these tablets from home. Holly, I'd like to cut you in, old man. There's nobody left in Vienna I can really trust, and we've always done everything together. When you make up your mind, send me a message. I'll meet you any place, any time. And when we do meet, old man, it's you I want to see. Not the police. Remember that, won't you? <laughs> Don't be so gloomy. After all, it's not that awful. But what the fella said, mentally, for 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed. But they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love. They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. So long, Holly. The point that he's trying to make is trying to justify his, his evil in, you know, uh, basically withholding medicine from dying children. <laughs> <laughs> is that somehow this will push this will push you in progress. Maybe, oh, okay. those, maybe those sick children will grow up to be stronger and become the next Da Vinci. Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. It just like it kind of landed with a thud for me. I don't, again, just maybe the phrase "cuckoo clock." I'm like, uh, all right, you're not threatening as soon as you say no, it's hilarious. It's hilarious, Sean. All right. I mean, I love obviously Orson Welles in this scene and in mm-hmm. this movie, but I don't know. I thought I thought that could have used another pass, just a little bit, just nice. another pass. How would how would you have written, John? Okay, you're on the spot. You have to improv something. Go. I'm. Oh, excuse me. I wouldn't dare yeah. improv. Okay, because a good writer <laughs> takes time. All right. Well, I, well, obviously they kept it in the movie, John. They said, "Sorry, Mr. Graham Green, you're you're you No, they probably trash. that was probably the only. No, it was probably Orson Welles who wrote that in, because he's an uncredited writer on this. So obviously nice. he had his own input. He's like, "All right, how do we do this scene so I don't have to run? How do we do this nice. scene so I can eat a whole log of cheese? How do we do this scene <laughs> so I can eat a whole beef steak?" <laughs> No, you're not going to wear me way out of this one. All right, okay. I'm playing Holly Martins. All right, we open up the door to the Ferris wheel. Like you know, I, I'm going to have to turn you in. I'm going to have to turn you in, Harry. Go. <laughs> no, because I'm Austin Wells. <laughs> That's all you had to say. Oh my gosh! You're, oh my gosh! You're right. <laughs> what are all these cam- What are all these cameras doing here? Where am I? <laughs> they should have turned to really meta. <laughs> turn around. Yeah. All right, that's a wrap. All right, moving yeah. on. It should have ended like Blazing Saddles. He chases them through the studio back lot, and they wind up on the on the set of Gold Diggers of Thirty Three. Oh my gosh, Orson Welles would have loved it if he could have rode off in a limousine. Yep, it's like no more walking, please. Yeah, my ankles are swollen. Get me a broad and a cigar. The broad. Anyway, uh, uh, wrapped by his conscience, mm-hmm. uh, conscience, conscience. <laughs> Joseph Cotton, Joseph Cotton's character does indeed go to the police, mm-hmm. and it leads to this final confrontation. They're they're leaving a a, a meeting with him and Harry as bait. Mm-hmm. Um, but wouldn't you know it? Anne shows up. Oh dear! She refuses. Yeah, she just refuses like a woman to... butting in her business, just getting <laughs> everyone's way. No, Go John, back to the refuses... kitchen and make cookies. <laughs> no, John. She refuses to accept this uh, this agreement. You know, like the ending of Casablanca, which obviously also also shines a pale over this movie. The of success course. of Casablanca. <laughs> they're just gonna say, "Get away!" You know, leave, just like uh, Lauren Bacall in that movie. But mm. no, she she wants to stick by her man. Ugh, and it does not work out. Let me tell you, fellas. 
no. They run through the sewers, and I the sequence is very well shot, but I thought it kind of went on just a little bit too long. Well, I I think they're trying to yeah I think they're trying to convey the confusion and the absolute labyrinthian you know uh, nature of this of the sewer system. I think that's what they're trying to convey. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it could definitely be cut short by at least a minute or two. Yeah. I mean, dude, we because... really need so many insert shots of soldiers like looking off into the middle distance. <laughs> yeah. Or or Harry Lime doubling back like fifteen <laughs> times. <laughs> Although it does lead to my one of probably my favorite sequence, which is he kind of ends up at this intersection where there's like 10,000 hallways he could definitely take, but then you start yeah. hearing the voices, all of the German and the Austrian and the Russian mm. again. You know, all these people are closing in on him. I thought that was quite brilliant. Great use of sound. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of the cinematography and the actual look of the film, it climaxes in, like, he's uh, Harry Lyon's been shot, poor um, Sergeant Payne has also been shot, and mm. succumbs to his wounds. Don't remind um, me. So, poor, I know, poor, poor one out for Sergeant Payne. Um, <laughs> And he and he's climbing up this ladder, and he sticks his fingers through the grate, and you see his gloves, and you know it's just again it's just perfectly he's, lit, and it's just a, a perfect little coda to this uh, very uh, admittedly long but kind of brilliant <laughs> chase sequence. <laughs> well, so Harry again has kind of been leading up to this. Uh, Harry's confronted yeah. by Holly at the end of this staircase. You know, he's the last mm-hmm. grasp of freedom, and it's it's shot from a distance, and we hear a gunshot. Yeah. And we know Holly walks out of it alive, and we know Harry is dead. But I, it's it's kind of left ambiguous who did the final shooting. I guess, I, and I don't know, is that to kind of like add a little kind of moral ambiguity to Holly? Maybe. Like, maybe is, he, cause is he capable he, of killing someone in cold blood? Yeah, and but or is you know Harry Lyme, you know the the jolly Harry Lyme, you know <laughs> ever willing to take his own life and. Mm-hmm. For that, you don't quite believe. So I always interpret it, and even though it is interp- open to interpretation, I always assume that Holly did take the life of his friend after seeing, you know, what the the, the ringer that he's put him through and the evil that he's that he's kind of practiced here in Vienna. So, see, I don't like that, and mostly because <laughs> again, this is not a very action-heavy movie. No, and for the kind of final confrontation for Holly to be the one to kind of pull the trigger, I don't know. It feels a little out of character to me. I, it is. You're right, because again, he's been such a sympathetic figure this whole f- time. So you don't, mm-hmm. you don't, you never see him act out in that kind of anger before. No. And the other thing too is, again, he's not a detective. He's a novelist. <laughs> <laughs> it's like if he were like maybe a former cop, you know, lo- yeah. you know, hard on the edge, you know, kind of like a Dirty Harry or you know Humphrey Bogart kind of role, maybe it would work. But again, he's just, he's just kind of a stooge. Yeah. So I don't and maybe know. if he was, yeah, maybe if he was also more hardened by this experience, like, yeah. let's say, because again, he gets pegged for murder early on. Let's say he went to prison and you know suffered suffered more because of uh, Harry's actions, and maybe we can understand it. But yeah, I mean, he has kind of suffered. He was a fugitive for what fifteen minutes, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Until he's exonerated by the, by the, in spite of how um you know as as we said difficult uh Callaway could be he still he still cuts a jaunty <laughs> tone pretty much throughout the film. No, absolutely, and again by the middle act they're working together like completely yeah. in sync. Well, um, and also yeah, there's one final one final you know denouement, and that's at the funeral for the the actual yeah the actual funeral for Harry Lyme, mm-hmm. and again and a little reverse um initially uh. Joseph Cotton, jo- uh, uh, Holly Martins doesn't throw ashes on the grave, um, whereas Anne does. This time it's reversed. Um, mm-hmm. Now that it's actually, now that you know Harry Lyme's actually in the ground, um, <laughs> Holly throws the ashes on, whereas Anne does not. Mm. That was a that was a good little 
thing I missed. So thank yeah. you for pointing that out. Yep. And then yeah, uh, see who's stupid now. <laughs> <laughs> and so but anyway, he, this is where uh, we... Holly Holly's getting driven back to the airport. He's getting a plane out mm-hmm. of town, and yep. he stops and he wants to try to make it work one more time with Anne. I know, John. The clock's the clock's ticking. I mean, he's he's either gonna stick around with Anne or, or leave Vienna forever. I mean, what's it gonna be? Exactly. And Anne just walks by his ass. <laughs> Bye, boy. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is where we need our Casablanca. You know, mm-hmm. let's say the the conflict is resolved, but you know, we don't get roses and daisies happy ending. No, but also, again, I've been complaining about the score the whole time. The score actually does really work here because it does take a more melancholy tone when she just walks by. And I like the setup of the scene because she's actually walking towards the camera. He's kind of like off to the side. Instead of like a middle shot, they kind of just focus completely on her. So yeah. I did kind of, and, and it's just an absolutely gorgeous shot. Like the trees, <laughs> the leaves are falling. It's, oh, it's brilliant. Not just the the score, but also the time it takes. Because I think it takes her two minutes. They And there was some, in the behind the scenes, you know, trivia for this movie, there was some consternation, like how long is this shot going to last? Mm. And I think it's literally just, you know, focused on her two minutes about approaching the camera. Um, Holly's off to the side and the, and it's a question over that two minutes. Like, what's she going to do? Is she going to keep walking or is she going to stop and, you know, admit her romance to Holly? Mm. And so, you know, even though it is a very long shot after, and you kind of want the movie to end at this point, <laughs> Because we have to get on with our lives. Uh, <laughs> well, know, also kinda... we also kind of sneakingly suspect that you know they're not going to make it work. Come on, it's a noir story. It's... There's no happy endings. Well, don't be don't be cynical, John. <laughs> it's the stuff that dreams are made of. Yeah, I, exactly. So, and yeah, it's after it's after the war. There are no happy endings anymore until That's about true. 1951, and then and then we can have happy endings again. Yeah, agonize over what exactly she's going to choose to do, and she chooses to just continue to walk on by. Yeah, again, we have our, we have our, I think, an appropriate ending. Yeah. Yeah, and oddly enough, I, I think the roles were reversed. You know, Carol Reed, you know, was a guy of great artistic integrity. He wanted, like, a sunshine and roses happy ending, whereas David O. Selznick, the, uh, the, old, the old crone, you know, Hollywood <laughs> producer, actually wanted more downbeat ending, so. That kind of surprises me. Exactly. Uh-huh. So, in, in a movie full of surprises. Yes. Quite a tight thriller. Yeah. Good job. Brilliant. The absolute, to me, the absolute apex, other than maybe Sunset Boulevard, the absolute apex of uh, <laughs> of uh, film noir. So, check it out, people. <laughs> this gets the aspiring snob stamp of approval. Indeed. Coins Here, do that just right now. now. <laughs> after almost 100 episodes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We've coined that right now. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> We'll do our official yay or nay vote. Call to order. <laughs> order. Order here. <laughs> and I both get an official yay. All right. Moving on to yes. our next segment. Ooh, yes. I'll, I'll do this in my best <clears throat> Orson Welles. How do I, how do, I do this? <laughs> do I, I, I need a glass of champagne. Where's my champagne? <laughs> <laughs> it's celebrated for sex. <laughs> <laughs> 
Sorry, sorry. We won't focus. What? We'll focus on the good years. The forties. The forties were okay to Orson the rest of the time. I was actually kind of. Yeah, I so was much. kind of like ruminating. It's like him and uh, Marlon Brando kind of had the same career track, where they started as like these young, hungry actors, you know, really full of themselves mm-hmm. and really full of life, and then they just kind of ballooned. <laughs> I just <laughs> kind of like gave up. It's like, how hard do I have to work to become the fattest man alive? <laughs> well, they're, yeah, they're both their kind of career triumphs happened in their early to mid twenties. For Orson Welles, it was granted it was the Mercury Theater days. It was it wasn't quite you know Citizen Kane and Magnificent Ambersons. That didn't the success of those movies didn't come till later. But for yeah, Brando it was all these you know it was basically the fifties, <laughs> and then he he just couldn't keep. There were more and more actors coming up. He couldn't like you know stay fresh in the market. So, but I mean, come on. Now, he granted, was... he had kind of a granted Brando had kind of a second act in the seventies. Yeah, with the, the Godfather, whereas uh, <laughs> unfortunately Welles did not. Well, also, you're forgetting Superman. Yeah, well, exa- well, that's part of that second act. That's what I'm. Oh, okay. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. You just you only mentioned the Godfather. Don't forget well, about the right. island that of Doctor Moreau. That was the catalyst. That was the catalyst for it. No, uh, that was uh, that was his uh, Transformers the movie. Oh, okay. <laughs> but yes, into our next segment. Yes. yes. Now is time for dark sh- dark shadows and. Uh, shit, I'm so well, bad little, at improv. Little, I know. <laughs> How about a little deceit and trickery, John? Yes. Light obscures in the dark. With, yes, John, I sympathize with your plight. I understand that you're you know, not necessarily great at improv. <laughs> John, John Mantel is a scoundrel. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just doing. I'm just doing Citizen Kane lines. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Spotlight. 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 It's time, Robbie. It's time. <laughs> yes, we nailed it. Yes, perfect. John, what do you have for Spotlight? Um, so I finally got a chance this week to finish up the complete series because it was sadly canceled last year or this year. Um, wait, a, sh- a beloved show was canceled? <laughs> I, I find that hard to believe. <laughs> well, obviously there was a campaign. It's like someone has to save it. There's way too many streaming services not for it not to be saved. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I finally got the chance to finish up Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. Ah, yes. The- I, I won't say venerable, but the uh, let's say let's say unique uh, BBC production starring Elijah Wood and written by Max Landis, right? Yes, it was created for television by Max Landis, and so I, mm-hmm. I thought, you know, let's catch let's catch Max Landis before his career inevitably dies. So let's, oh, let's see what this man's on, working John. with. Come on, John, he's, he's the internet's most beautiful boy. <laughs> it's a very weird show, believe it or not. What <laughs> I know. You mean a show called Dirk Gently's, you know, holistic something or other detective agency? It was, it was it's it cuts a, cuts a strange cl- is cut from a strange cloth. I know, believe it or not, um, and that's why I, I again I kind of want to recommend it because it kind of worked for me, but I can kind of appreciate why it's not going to work for everybody because it is an investment because for the first three episodes each season it is just throwing stuff at the wall that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. But obviously, it's a detective story, so by the end of the season, everything will kind of wrap up, and you realize that everything was interconnected. That's the whole theme of the show. The idea mm-hmm. is that Dirk, Dirk Gently is this detective. He doesn't really know what cases he's taking. He doesn't really know what clue he's going to find, but he's just going to bumble his way, and again, the universe will provide everything he needs to know. And this obviously comes to the detriment of his assistant, Todd, who's kind of the straight man. And that is one of the big problems of this show, is the fact that Every character is capital K Kooky. Um, (laughs) But the actors the actors actually do a really good job selling it, so Alright, who who plays Todd? Uh, Todd is Elijah Wood. Oh, he's Elijah Wood, okay. 
So he's not the star of the show. Wait, 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 breaking news. Elijah Wood is not technically the star of the show? <laughs> I mean, techni- I mean, you can think of him as kind of the star of the show because, again, Dirk Gently, he's kind of more, again, he's capital K kooky. We need kind of a, uh audience surrogate. And Todd is the closest uh, thing to that. Um, okay. He's kind of a loser. He uh, <laughs> he obviously doesn't really have much direction in his life. He was in a band with his sister for a while, but he kind of uh, when we first are introduced to him, he's kind of doing a, he works at a hotel, this like kind of like lame day job. And then he runs into Dirk Gently by chance, and Dirk Gently asks him the eponymous question. I think you question. said Dirk Gently. Sorry, Dirk Gently. Sorry. <laughs> Dirk Gently asks him. Dirk Gently. <laughs> More like Jerk Gently, am I right? Yeah. Bam. Nailed him. <laughs> he asks him the eponymous question that he, he always introduces himself with. Have you noticed an increased level of strangeness in your life? Ayo. Yep. And this kind of wraps him into the first season is a case involving... Um, like Nikola Tesla-esque steampunk devices and time travel. So there you go. All right. <laughs> so, so it's serialized. It's not episodic. No, and every every season centers around a different case. Got it. And um, you can definitely, you know, by the end of it, kind of see where the case is going. Uh, the second season is much, much weirder because it involves, like, a whole, like, fantasy land. Like a whole kind of, like, medieval kingdom that is kind of like a pocket dimension somewhere else. It's very, very strange. <laughs> okay. Right. Yeah. But, I mean, it's kind of fascinating. And, again, like, the actors really, really sell it. I'm not going to say that the writing's great, because, obviously, Max Landis deserves no credit. But <laughs> what, what are you talking about? <laughs> He's the voice of a generation, John. Come on. I mean, have you seen Bright? That's the next Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. But the actors are really, really great. Uh, my personal favorite is uh, Fiona Dorf, who plays Bart. Uh, Fiona Dorf, uh, daughter of beloved character actor Brad Dorf. Ah. Um, she plays Bart, who is a holistic assassin. I see. So much like how he kind of bl- like Dirk blunders in, you know, solves crimes. She blunders in and kills people. <laughs> Again, okay. the universe, you know, doesn't really give her much direction on who she needs to kill. And what's also great about her character, especially in the first season, is she'll end up like killing people you think are perfectly innocent and then reveal that no she was completely justified in killing them okay yeah so, so again yeah. so only only the bad people exactly so sympathies yeah well you again but it's it's wildly. yeah it's hard to kind of call her a hero because it's not like she did it intentionally mm. but yeah it's it's just kind of like a really odd show and i just kind of want to like give it credit for that is that there's probably <laughs> nothing like it on t- television currently and probably won't be for a while because again it failed it got canceled so it's <laughs> done <laughs> All right, uh, this is when, if were I Max Landis, I would spin an excuse. Like, oh, you know, British television series, they only last, you know, six episodes max, or mm. something like that, you know. Even though the BBC is obviously changing up that format, they're going to do Sherlock ad infinitum. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, this is really more of a, it's BBC America, but let's be honest, this is more of a Canadian show than anything else. Oh, okay. Yeah, what's, what's really cute that. is that the second season, they claim it takes place in Montana. I'm like, come on. You shot this somewhere outside Vancouver. You can't fool me. <laughs> Ouch, John. I, I guess that's the one the one place that uh, British Columbia can't fake, <laughs> can't can't stand in for. Well, that was also the kind of the one of the weird things about Orphan Black, is they were very again it was it's a Canadian show. You could definitely tell they filmed in Vancouver, but they were very nebulous about where it took place. Like the city mm-hmm. is New York esque. Go, you know, an hour out, you're in the suburbs. Go two hours out, you're in the south. Go three hours out, you're in Mexico. You know, like, none of it ever made sense geography-wise. Okay. Yeah. Well, it is also taking place in a world with, like, two dozen clones, so... <laughs> what are you saying, Greg? You see, they don't they don't have to comport to reality that, that badly. And if nerds on the internet are like, well, where, do, where does this actually take place? The geography of the, it makes no sense. 
Great. Like those Are dorks, t- like those dorks complaining about Game of Thrones. Like <laughs> The timeline doesn't make sense. <laughs> I know. How could she fly a dragon all the way to the north? <laughs> Whatever, nerds. Get a life. <laughs> Greg, are you telling me that a TV show which had a character with a tail in it, with a tail, <laughs> is unrealistic? How dare you? <laughs> I'm just, she's just living her truth. I mean... <laughs> It was actually a male character. He had, oh, it, genetic, he had it genetically added, because, again, it's all about genetics. Anyway, Orphan Black, yeah. also a great show. Okay. Check that out. That just ended last Got year, it. too. Anyway, yeah. mm-hmm. Greg, yes. what do you have for Spotlight? The world needs so John, to know! Uh, it, it, the world does need to know, John, because as we're recording this, yesterday we lost a titan of the world cinema. Oh, yes. I'm taking dirt, and I'm shoveling it onto his grave right now. I it's ashes, John. Little, little Sorry, ashes. Ashes, right. ashes, yeah. ashes dust to dust. Yes, and I don't, I'm not sure how they do that in Japan. But anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, Shinobu Hashimoto was a legendary screenwriter, frequent collaborator of the king, uh, Akira Kurosawa. <laughs> don't you mean emperor? And, uh, yeah, emperor, <laughs> dictator, yeah, whatever you prefer. <laughs> And unfortunately, he passed away, uh, as we were recording this yesterday, at the ripe age of 100. Ooh. Yes, leaving behind quite a resume. Um, and so with that in mind, I wanted to actually spotlight his first collaboration with the emperor himself, Kira Kurosawa. And to what is, my, to my mind, probably the greatest movie ever made. <laughs> I'm talking about The Duke, number one in the hood, G. It's Rashomon. <laughs> okay. I don't remember you liking Rashomon that much. Ao <laughs> jokes, <Nailed it>. yes. <laughs> jokes. John, I'm glad you brought that up because literally the only reason I was in our local library in the video store section because I thought back then, as I do today, that books are stupid. Give me movies any day of the week. <laughs> and this is before yeah. the days they had the gall to charge a dollar to rent out DVDs. <laughs> exactly. And John, I'm glad you mentioned DVDs because I got this on VHS. It was on the wow. shelf as a VHS tape. Yeah. Even wow. before even before the Criterion Collection got their grubby little fingers on it and added all these, you know, great supplements. But anyway, <laughs> the, the gall, the, the balls on these people. Anyway. And I saw it on the shelf and I remembered that Simpsons joke. And I'm like, hey, if it's good enough for the Simpsons, it must be good enough for me. Okay. So I got it and that began my toward love affair with Akira Kurosawa and Shinobu Hashimoto. All right. So for anybody that doesn't know, and well, if you're listening to a film podcast, you probably should know at this point. <laughs> Rashomon is a story uh, set back in the 18th century Japan. A uh, samurai is, uh, and his lady, you know, just wandering through the woods and then a bandit comes upon them. And it's told, this encounter is told from multiple different perspectives. And, you know, as as negotiated by three poor guys, the rainy Rashomon decrepit Rashomon Gate. Mm-hmm. So, um, really, it's it's a brilliantly done movie. Again, expertly directed by the the emperor himself, greatest filmmaker ever who to ever live, Akira Kurosawa. And I I will say Shinobu Hashimoto probably obviously doesn't get the credit that uh, Kurosawa does because he didn't direct. Um, he directed a few movies later. Obviously, never got the attention that. Kurosawa did, and in their later collaborations, they had a whole like team of like five writers um, to adapt these old Shakespeare plays. And unfortunately, they didn't collaborate after about like nineteen ninety or sorry nineteen sixty six because um, Kurosawa had some issues in his personal life and you know committed tried to commit suicide. And uh, it's, it's, not, it's not <laughs> okay. We don't need to go that dark. Okay, yeah. <laughs> it's neither here nor there. But for this for this screenplay, it was just Kurosawa and Hashimoto. 
And again, they crafted something exceptionally brilliant. Literally, that could literally change the landscape of world cinema. This movie premiered at the Venice Film Festival, and people were like, whoa, 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 wait a second. <laughs> Japan makes movies? <laughs> movies better than we make? Come on, I'm like... This is this is this is good. This is amazing, and it was literally revelatory, and it's literally one of the greatest movies ever made. And if you haven't seen it yet, you literally, I want you to hit pause right now. <laughs> Either go to your local library or the Filmstruck Criterion Collection, anything. Just rush immediately. Go right now. Stop now. Now. Go. 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 Okay. And go see Rashomon. All right. Calm down. Calm down. <laughs> no, this is important. <laughs> okay. <laughs> It's literally an important celebration, and we'll also celebrate the life of the great Shinobu Hashimoto. So, All right. I mean, may he rest in peace. Look, my favorite Akira Sawa film is Seven Samurai, so I obviously don't share the same affinity for Rashomon <laughs> that you do. It's a very good. No. It's a great film. I have no doubt. It's well, not yeah, my top. Seven Samurai is equally is equally as good, and uh, Hashimoto contributed to that screenplay as well. Yeah. I mean, that's but, that would be my you know mini spotlight if I could throw that in there. That's just my personal yeah. opinion, but. And heck, uh, I, heck, I can I can keep throwing him in there. Hidden Fortress, he he um, contributed that screenplay. Okay. Uh, don't forget the Bad Sleep Well, an adaptation of Hamlet, you know, of all things. <laughs> and of course, the other the other movie I was going to spotlight, I think I spotlighted it before, Ikiru. Oh yeah, you've, yeah. You've definitely spotlighted that before. You haven't brought up your Jimbo. Mm-hmm. What about your Jimbo? Uh, that's not my personal favorite, but that's also that's also has a huge cultural influence. So. Okay. He was on that too. I mean, again, like literally every movie before about 1966, Hashimoto had a hand in. So okay, and I wish I wish I could watch one of uh, his films. Like uh, I think uh, his most notable kind of solo work was a, a movie called "I Want to Be a Shellfish." Um, <laughs> it sounds delightful. Exactly. Yeah, it sounds like a sweet little uh, movie. I think uh, was made for like TV back in the 60s and has been remade since. But uh, Again, I, th- I think pretty hard to find here in America. Ugh. That might not be on your library shelves. I'm okay. sorry. <laughs> All right. We should definitely we should definitely put it on a schedule. <laughs> yes, but rest rest in power, King. Mm, yes, pour one out. Well, you you left it on such a downer note, Greg. Come on. What do you mean left it on such a downer? Let's celebrate the life of this. This guy lived a hundred good long years. <laughs> okay. <and laughs> contributed to at least fifteen of the greatest movies ever made, probably. So. <laughs> All right, all right. I mean, there was just so much energy. Now it's gonna. Now we're just gonna have to bring it down with the social media plugs. <laughs> oh yeah. Usually we bring so much enthusiasm to that because social media is the greatest force in, in the world. <laughs> yes. Ask James Gunn. He loves it. Ooh, yeah. yeah. Social media worked out great for me. <laughs> yep. Yeah, but yes, we're on Twitter where you can find all our old racist tweets, and uh, yeah. Facebook where you can John, find. John, racist? No, we 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 jo- no. It's where we have these jokes. Quote. <laughs> About trans people, because that's yeah. hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> Pedophilia. It's comedy gold. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> All the legends. Yeah, what what comedy legend, legend hasn't had their pedophilia <laughs> joke? Come on. You've got your five minutes on how New York is different from L.A., <laughs> and you have your other five on, on uh, you know, raping young boys. <laughs> so... <laughs> And then you can connect with us on Facebook and find our all right page or our incel yeah, page. I don't know. Social media yeah. is garbage. We're on we're on chats about how um, you know taking down the pedophilia ring. So <laughs> we joke about it on Twitter. Yes. But we want to take down the the uh, Clinton Clinton family and you know Podesta family uh, child sex ring. So. <laughs> yes, pedophilia rings would be a okay if it weren't a woman running it. Yeah. <laughs> But if you have questions or comments, the best way to reach us is through email. Reach out to us at aspiringsnobs at gmail.com with your questions, recommendations, and comments. 
Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll answer. We'll be happy to answer any questions, and we do take recommendations. Yeah, Thelma and Luis, that was an audience recommendation right there. So, and we we'll take more if we have more. I mean, yes. <laughs> obviously, if you don't if you don't like the movies that we're recommending or um, <laughs> that we're watching, even though the third man is great, you should check that out as well. Of course, just uh, go ahead and share with us some more. Because again, we love to share our thoughts. As as uh, we love to hear your thoughts. We're so. white men on the internet. Okay, our opinions have value. <laughs> Not just on the internet, John. The world. That's true. The world. <laughs> Speaking, John. Let's let's have our voices heard over the world. And the way that folks can do that is by rating us and reviewing us on the on the podcast service of choice, whether mm-hmm. it be Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Player FM, Acast, Podbeam. We're all on there. Yep. Let so your voice ahead. be heard. Yes. Let your voice be heard. <laughs> Share your thoughts <laughs> by leaving a if, comment and giving five stars. Yes. Uh, well, Greg, I think that this episode we were kind of all over the place. We were. We were I, I disagree. I think we were, <laughs> it was a tight, focused conversation. I, I think we should just give up on making sense, Greg. Let's stop making sense. Hey, yes. that's a movie we're watching next week. Wait, you mean Nashville? Or <laughs> no, <laughs> we're watching our first concert film. Uh, a oh, yeah. concert film directed uh, by the documentary. Yes, yeah. the late great Jonathan Demme. We're still not over him mm-hmm. quite yet. So we're celebrating no. his life even further by watching his Talking Heads concert film, Stop Making Sense. Again, presumably, I think, uh, widely regarded as the greatest concert film yes. ever committed to the celluloid. So. And if it's the only one I ever watch in my lifetime, fine, fine, because I don't <laughs> like concerts. <laughs> Why would I listen to music I know, live? You were, you were floored. I know, you were floored by Pink's concert, though, because it was literally the only concert you've ever been to, and you were like, they, they changed costumes? Okay, hold on. I've been to, like... There are lights and video? I've been Whoa. to, like, three music concerts, okay? <laughs> as, yes, proof, music concert. as proof as I call them music concerts. <laughs> How many sports games have you been to? <laughs> I've been to at least two dozen sports games. Sports <laughs> contests, if you will. Yeah. The, not, my personal favorite are the baseball matches. <laughs> Yes, those men take the court <laughs> with great bravery and stride. But yes, you look forward to that next week. And I, I don't think you even need to be a huge Talking Heads fan to enjoy it. So Please, please, enjoy along with us. Well, thank you everybody for listening. And until next time, keep aspiring. The taste of French champagne has always been celebrated for its excellence. There's a California champagne by Paul Masson, inspired by that same French excellence. It's fermented in the bottle, and like the best French champagne, it's vintage dated. Paul Masson's superb taste shouldn't be too surprising. This champagne doesn't come from France, but it was created by a man who did. Paul Masson. Paul Masson must sell no wine before it's time.